Well, welcome, everyone, and uh, looks like there's a few more people in here now than there was earlier, so that's, uh, you got to go with everybody that comes. I mean, uh, sometimes, you know, when I get in jail, uh, there's one guy that'll show up for service, and it's just really a blessing because, you know, even though the numbers aren't there, uh, you have more intimate fellowship and stuff like that, so... Well, biblical counseling, we're going to talk about it again tonight, and uh, what you're going to find, I think, is that it's a lot about theology. We're going to talk about theology tonight. A lot of it is probably a duplication of, of stuff you've heard, maybe even from this morning, which, which is good, because that just says that maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to you know, put something in your mind. So, but I'm going to open up in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we uh, just thank you uh, for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for your grace towards us, uh, both in salvation and in uh, just the life that we have with you. And Father, I just ask for your help tonight. Uh, just as we talk about biblical counseling, that uh, you would help me to articulate things that are true according to your word, and that, uh, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to be able to uh, receive your word, which is true. And so I just ask for your help for this time and pray for your blessing on it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I... I was going to say it probably is already up there, but uh, for reviewing last time, what were some of the things that we talked about that you guys took away from it, all right, without looking up at the screen and saying, oh yeah, we talked about uh, biblical counseling is ministering the word of God to believers with humility, compassion, and accountability to bring about abiding hope, change, and usefulness for the glory of God. But what were some other takeaways that you had from last week? What's the difference between secular counseling and biblical counseling? Secular is talking about changing your attitudes and behaviors okay. within yourself. Okay. Good. Thanks for sharing that. Anybody else? That the goal of biblical counseling is sanctification. Okay, yeah. That's a... A real key thing, and that's, as we talk about theology tonight, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more than just about uh, theology, but mainly it's going to be a lot about theology, and that's going to be a big part of it, is that, you know, biblical counseling is all about sanctification, and, all right, anybody else? All right, well, uh, so... We did uh, talk last week about what is, and this was Stuart Scott's definition, and I already read it, but uh, I think the key that, I mean, the whole thing is jam-packed with goodness. So a counselor is one that needs to have compassion and accountability. Uh, Compassion because, you know, the Bible teaches us in Galatians chapter 6 that I... were to uh, basically restore 
those with gentleness that have sinned. Why? Why, you guys? Because we need to be on guard because we could, the same thing could happen to us, basically. Uh, But accountability as well, because as a counselor, you're accountable for your, to act according to God's word as well, but also to stay true to the doctrine of of the Bible, uh, the doctrines of God. So it's not about bringing our own, like you wouldn't want to come to counseling and listen to me tell you about how you should do things because this is the way I did it, because you might find yourself in a a lot of trouble, all right? Uh, You want to hear what God has to say, and that's my goal as a counselor. And that should be your goal as a counselor as well. But again, then it's to bring about hope, and that's a key thing, hope and change, and then to bring glory to God. All right. Well, we also uh, talked, well, and part of this, uh, Romans fifteen fourteen, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you are yourselves full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And we highlighted that word admonish is where Nuthetic Counseling gets its, its basically its, its theme, is that word, Nuthetio, if I said it right in the Greek, is to reprove or instruct. And, uh, and then we talked about having a God-centered focus. Uh, with keeping God at the center, we talked about Isaiah 42 and Acts 17. We talked about humanity has what? The tendency to exalt ourselves. And that's very true, even in the church. Um, but our goal, and really not just our goal as counselors, but your goal as a Christian should be to glorify God. And uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do uh, in word or d- and deed due to the glory of God. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, right. 
Yeah, well, yeah, in order to get certified through the, uh, the ACBC, which is the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, they have a three-phase process. So, uh, fortunately, by God's grace, a lot of the books that we read here uh, are important because uh, in phase one, you have to have read a thousand pages of, you know, all these books. But I'll just have to say this. If you've ever seen the big book by John MacArthur, Biblical Doctrine, it's about a thousand pages. So if you've read that, you're good to go. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, so I mean, there's certain things you have to do in phase one, uh, which is read a thousand pages. Another couple other books are counseling, one of the ones that I told you about. I don't have the other one with me, but Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. There's a number of other books like that. And um, also you have to watch like 10 hours of like uh, uh, somebody that's certified in counseling in the ACBC, 10 hours of watching them counsel. Uh, and then uh, I'm trying to think of what else is in phase one. I do have this at some point in the thing. But yeah, phase two then is to do uh, the exam, which is 24 theological questions, uh, 20 biblical counseling questions. And then phase three is actually you get a supervisor. And so there's a little cost involved, not as much as going, hardly as like maybe not even a tenth of what it costs to go to school, um, where you pay somebody to be your supervisor, and then you have to do 50 hours of supervised counseling. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if you actually have to be just a member or what they call a, um, there's another level, and I'm not sure if they're, yeah, right, right. I don't, I don't you know, it's, uh, I, I'm not fully sure on that, but I'll look into it. We can talk about it. You can also find it for yourself on the ACBC website. Um, yeah. Correct. Yeah, there's uh, not in all cases what you have to do is record the sessions and then uh, and then you also have to fill out this form which has about 16 questions about, you know, do you see change in them? Do you, see, you know, all these kind of questions. And your supervisor then reads over it and also listens to your, not all the recordings, but some of them, and gives you input, feedback, pass, fail, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why last week, and, and I think some people, I talked to some people that may have struggled with this, but, uh, or had some more questions about it, but that, Whenever we talk to somebody, 
if they're asking us a question because they think we might have an answer, we're counseling them. And uh, that could be problematic, you know, especially uh, last week I have to laugh. There was an individual here at church. I mean, I'm not saying I do the greatest all the time. Uh, You know, and this guy was looking for a girlfriend. I said, hey, why don't you go ask that girl? Bad advice. She was married. <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you trying to do here, Dave? The, uh, but my point is simply this, that uh, when we give people advice, um, we're either um, we're, uh, lifting up God in the process of it, or we're lifting up ourselves or the human way of doing it. And so... My encouragement in it, in it isn't to, uh, well, we should have the fear of the Lord in us, all right, to the point where when we do talk to people, because even Jesus says that we'll be judged by every word, you know, that we say. So we should be careful about what we say to people. And, you know, I mean, part of it is I know that, uh, and I'll just share this, not all the time will people receive what you had to have to say. One time I was in jail, and I was doing a service, and I was talking about uh, John chapter 3, uh, verses 17 through 19. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. All right. Uh, the next day, I got a call from the director of the ministry, uh, you were preaching racism in the jail. Why? You know? And then I got a call from the, uh, the program director at the jail, and I had to go through an inquiry thing because um, that was taken very much out of context uh, by somebody who they even admitted has problems with delusions. Um, but was saying that I said all kinds of things that I didn't say. And so sometimes uh, you will tell people things that will be taken out of context, but it shouldn't, we shouldn't shy back from giving God's counsel. And, and again, the reason for that is you don't even have to go through a, a whole process of um, ACBC certification although it is a way cheaper and a way quicker way of, than how I did it. But needless to say, the point is we should be counseling one another, but it should be in the context of what does God's word say. And so that's why it's so important to understand uh, theology. The one thing that, and this is, this is a key verse, we, we just... Uh, kind of highlighted on it last time, but if somebody would read Matthew 16, uh, 24 through 25. So having a God-centered focus, and again, this is review, but we just touched on it lightly last time, is what does it mean to be a disciple? So look at Matthew 16, 24 through 25, if somebody would read that. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay. And that's really the paradox of, of the Christian life. We forsake, we deny ourselves, which is, it goes countercultural. Because again, the world is all about lifting up the self. Um, but here we're denying the self, and we're at not only denying ourselves, but we're uh, taking up our cross, which. What does that mean, by the way, to take up our cross? What does it mean? A lot of times people don't understand that the cross was a form of capital punishment. So sometimes you can look at it like taking up your electric chair or taking up the uh, firing squad, in a sense. The point is that we're, we're dying to ourself. We're you know, we're willing, I guess, I mean, we're not like martyrs in the sense that we are just going to go, you know, go down to like some Muslim country and start preaching Jesus right in the middle so we can get shot. Uh, But it's that, what are we willing to do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ? You know, and, and really, it's what is God calling us to do? Because sometimes dying to yourself is just something simple like, uh, uh, like for example, uh, you have like time on your hand maybe, or maybe not that much time, but you see somebody that needs help at church, and your thought is, well, I got to go do this, I got to do that, but God is really maybe tugging at your heart to go help that individual, or maybe to give them some money. Um, those are the kind of things, simple things, that are more dying to our own desires, our own needs or wants. And so uh, so it's multi-layered. Yeah, it could mean giving your life, but it's really more about sacrifice, about giving all to Christ. And that's the Godward focus or God-centered focus. So what we're going to talk about now is, you know, as we look at um, sanctification. So if biblical counseling is about sanctification, what would be one of the biggest issues that we would deal with in counseling, do you think? Sin. Yeah, exactly. And so I'll have somebody read uh, Romans 3, 9 through 20. And somebody, Ecclesiastes 7.20. So if somebody could read those two. Go ahead, Ben. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, thanks for reading that. And then uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Oh, go ahead. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who is good and ever sins. All right. So we see from both of these passages that sin is universal. Now, Paul in, uh, <clears throat> in Romans 3 there is talking about unregenerate man, meaning we're either, if we haven't been redeemed, by Jesus Christ, regenerated that is, then that's us. If we've been redeemed, that was us. The problem is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, is that, uh, you know, what about uh, remaining sin, all right? Uh, But one thing we have to understand is, you know, sometimes, you know, there's some people that teach that, well, Paul was kind of out there. He might have even been a heretic. Uh, That is not true. First of all, incidentally, that's uh, Muslim theology. They will say that, uh, yes, these books of the Bible exist. They've become corrupted. But Paul himself was a heretic. All right. All those verses that we read, uh, mainly 10 through 18, are quotes from the Old Testament. And that's just to show that this isn't, not, this isn't some new theology. This is something that the Bible has taught from the beginning that man has fallen into sin. It happened in the garden, you know. Uh, and that sin is passed on to all men, men and women, that is. Uh, and that's uh, Romans 5.12, I believe. Uh, so sin is universal, and it affects every single human being. Now, the uh, a word we use a lot of times is called total depravity. And total depravity does not mean unbelieving sinners are always as bad as they could be, but it does mean that evil has con- contaminated every part of our humanity, the heart, the mind, our personality, emotions, etc. And that sinners have no ability to do spiritual good, or to save themselves. And then another term for total depravity is original sin. And that comes out of uh, counseling, uh, how to counsel biblically. So uh, that's total depravity. But the question I have, what about after we're saved then? And that's because when we're, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but so do you biblically counsel, because this will be a question you guys will eventually ask, do you biblically counsel people that are not saved? And the answer is, well, we counsel them evangelistically to understand the gospel, but, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but what are, you know, then why do we sin if God has redeemed us? Any thoughts on that? I'm getting a lot of blank stares like you guys are expecting me to give you the answer. Well, 
Yeah. Okay. We haven't been glorified yet. Yeah. Amen. We haven't. Um, the the question theologically is, what do you call it? The flesh? You know the Bible. Some versions call it the flesh. Some uh, versions call it sinful nature. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as remaining sin. But if we look at you know Romans six, for example, um, in Romans six one. And if somebody wants to look up 1 John uh, 1, 2, or I'm sorry, that should be 1 John 2, 1, a little uh, theological dyslexia there, but uh, 1 John 2, 1. But Romans 6, really after Paul talks about what true righteousness is, how one attains it, um, then he takes up the issue of sanctification, all right? Uh, Romans 6.1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then verse 15 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And there's a lot of, I, I believe, churches that, in a sense, teach that, maybe by default. Maybe they don't come out right out and say it, but they'll say, well, we're not under the law anymore. Well, that adultery, that's just, uh, that's being legalistic to call it sin, you know. I've heard that said, by the way. Um, Well, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So that talks about sin, but it's talking about sin after salvation, after God has made us righteous. But now, who has First uh, John 2, 1? Go ahead, Sean. Okay. So it's a real dilemma. I mean, we do, I mean, it's, it goes without saying, we sin. Um, we should not sin, but we do sin, all right? All right, well, so what I want to point out, and this is like, a, again, this is, whoops, I got ahead of myself. Back here. We don't want to talk about that yet. Um, justification versus sanctification. So, uh, and this is from... Uh, Wayne Grudem, and the reason I have it is because it was out of uh, Stuart Scott's notes. Um, But justification is when we are justified before the Lord. It deals with our legal standing before God, meaning that when we're justified, we're innocent before God. Um, When he sees us, he sees us like he would see Christ. You know, you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I believe, where it says, For he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Um, so it's a one, uh, once for all time at the moment of conversion. 
It's entirely God's work. Uh, it's perfect in this life, and it's the same in all Christians. All right? Uh, and again, those are uh, per Wayne Grudem. But then sanctification is considered an internal condition. It's continuous throughout this life. We cooperate in it versus, you know, God does the work. So somebody read Philippians, we'll look at Philippians uh, 2, uh, 12 through 13. Somebody go to there and read it. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Go ahead, Noah. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it, it, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay. So we see that in sanctification, we cooperate with God to uh, be sanctified, to be, and sanctification is just another part of our salvation, really, because it's about being made holy, all right? So uh, we cooperate. We're not perfect in this life, uh, but we're greater in some than in others. And I think what that's getting at is that there should be a progressive sanctification, meaning we should be progressively getting better. Uh, and we'll talk more about uh, the different types of sanctification uh, because there are different uh, uh, thoughts on uh, the process of sanctification. Uh, there's sinless perfection and a few other ones. And we'll talk about those. But I'm going to look at Pastor Steve here, but I believe we teach progressive sanctification at our church. And I just have to, just have to make sure I'm not saying anything. But no, I know that. Uh, yeah, we teach progressive sanctification. And what that looks like is, uh, to some it might look like this, all right? To some it might look like that. But the idea is that it's an upward trend of doing, uh, being more godly, all right? Meaning, and how sanctification really works is, and this is why it is so important to be in your Bible reading it every day, is that as you read the scripture, the Holy Spirit really illuminates what is what God wants you to be like, and which is like Christ, by the way. And as you realize that, then you are convicted in your mind, or you think differently, meaning you used to think like this, but now you think like this. I'll give you a great example from my own personal life, which I shouldn't do this, but I will anyhow. Um, when I first got saved, I mean, it was a great and a glorious thing, all right? And uh, I, it, was a, it was a new life, um, but I had not grown up very well as far as doing things right. And so uh, back then they didn't have PTO time. You were either, you took vacation or you were sick and you called in sick, and you got paid for being sick. Um, but you only got so many hours of that. But you couldn't just take a day off and say I was sick. But that's, you know, Jody's like, hey, I think we should go to Taylor's Falls. You know, it's a great summer day. I'm thinking, yeah, but I got to work, so I'll just call in sick. <laughs> <laughs> that was wrong, because I'll tell you why. 
we, I, it was the worst, one of the worst days of my life. I had, I had not only not any fun, I was just feeling so convicted all day long because why? Because I lied. And it go, went against this new creation that God had created in me. And so there was only one option for me, and that was to go confess to my boss that, you know, I know I called in sick. I wasn't really sick. And I mean, I could have been fired, but by God's grace, he was grace. He said, well, just take it as a day of vacation. But that was the last time I did that. And it was, it was a complete change in my life. And that's the way sanctification should work in us, is that as we read God's word and we realize, and I, I think the Holy Spirit works in us as well, to feel like, hey, something's not right here, all right? But it should change us. God's word should change us. And that's what sanctification is all about. All right, now we're going to, talk about self-esteem. And the reason why we're going to talk about self-esteem is because from a psychological point of view, if you go to a, a counselor, like a psychological counselor, whether they're a Christian counselor or, and, and I'll just say this, there's a difference between a biblical counselor and a Christian counselor, all right? Because a Christian counselor is somebody that's uh, is a psychologist, but they have integrated uh, the Bible with psychological practices, all right? Maybe some more than others, but, but we'll call them integrationists, okay? Uh, but what that means is that they may have taken on this uh, belief of self-esteem, all right? Now, this came from the American Psychological Association, I pulled it off their website. Self-esteem is the degree to which the qualities and characteristics contained in one's self-concept are perceived to be positive. It reflects a person's physical self-image, view of their accomplishments and capabilities, and values and perceived success in living up to them, as well as the ways in which others view and respond to that person. The more positive the cumulative perception of these qualities and characteristics, the the higher one's self-esteem. A reasonable high degree of self-esteem is considered an important ingredient of mental health. And that's very true. Uh, Self-esteem is a key to being your best person, the best person you can be, all right? Uh, Whereas low uh, self-esteem and feelings of worthlessness are are common depressive symptoms, all right? Now, I'm not talking about we need to feel worthless because there's, there's a lot of nuances to how this is. But what we have to understand is, and I'll go to the next slide here, and we talked about this a little last time, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs, all right? So, for copyright purposes, I thought not to put the diagram up there, but I'll, I'll walk through it, okay? So, at the lowest level, there's physiological needs, which are food, clothing, um, uh, sleep, 
uh, shelter, the air that you breathe. The second level, in other words, you have to have all these to be your best person, okay? Uh, The next level is safety and security, which includes health, employment, property, family, and social ability. Uh, And then you have loving belonging. This is friendship, family, intimacy, and a sense of connection. In other words, you need to feel like you belong to the community, all right? Uh, And then fourth is self-esteem, which is confidence, achievement, respect of others, the need to be a unique individual. And finally, self-actualization, which is morality, creativity. I don't know why they put morality in there, uh, but creativity, spontaneity, acceptance, experience, purpose, meaning, and inner potential. All right? Um, so the, here's the problem. You know, as you look at something like that, well, yeah, we do need food. You know, I mean, let's face it, if, if you don't get something to eat, if you haven't slept in a couple days, uh, you're probably not going to be the greatest, you know, person to be around. Um, so there is truth to it, all right? The problem with so many things is truth is twisted to, you know, basically reinterpret what is spiritually true according to the Bible. Uh, For example, Matthew 6, 31 through 32 says, and this was uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore do not be anxious about anything, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. All right? So, keyword in that, compared to what we're talking about, your father knows that you need. So, they are needs, all right? Yeah, having food is a need. Having water to drink is a need. I mean, we need these kind of things, all right? But, so when you twist it around like that, you know, it sounds palatable. You know, like, yeah, that, you know, that makes sense, all right? But when you start looking at it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a couple things here. I'm going to look at a quote from MacArthur. Uh, and he says, In some of our larger cities, as many as 200 murders will occur in a typical, typical week. I don't know if he means like all cities, because, uh, I mean, that's a lot for one city in a week. Um, but I mean, yeah. I mean, in a city like Chicago, maybe... 800 a year, Uh, L.A. maybe more, I'm not sure. Uh, Drive-by shootings, drunken brawls, gang violence, family strife, and other crimes all contribute to the body count. If lack of self-esteem is the problem of the human heart, why, we must ask, is the murder rate on the rise so dramatically in a society where self-esteem is also growing? The answer is that low self-esteem is not the problem. On the contrary, pride itself is the very problem that leads all to sin, including hate, hostility, and killing. A love for bloodshed festers in the heart of a sinful humanity. Remove the moral restraints from society, 
and the inevitable result will be an escalation of murder and violence, no matter how good people feel about themselves. So that was a quote from MacArthur. Well, MacArthur, he's, you know, we know about MacArthur. He's a little, you know, got his own way, all right? So what I'm going to read, and I'm, I'm not necessarily, you know, everything you read, you got to read with, uh, you know, a, a, a grain of salt. You know, I mean, it's like, you don't, what I'm saying is you don't want to take everything that anybody re- writes, including MacArthur, as gospel truth, all right? But here I find this interesting. This is a book by what I would call an integrationist, Diane Langberg. Uh, she is a Christian counselor. Um, the book is produced by New, New Growth Press, which is, a, I mean, they're a fairly solid publication company. I think she's a solid Christian to a degree. But again, you can't just read somebody and, you know, say, well, this person is right in everything. But here's what she says about self-esteem. And she's talking about uh, um, the psychology of evil and sin, all right? Which is interesting in itself that psychology would think like that. But the second thing, this is uh, what she writes, the second thing we have done is unthinkably echo, you've got to really listen to what she's saying here, it's really interesting. The second thing we have done is unthinkably echo the secular, psychological, or counseling community. Let me give you an example. We were told for years that problems in human beings were largely the result of what was called, quote, low self-esteem, unquote. This was the answer for violence, bad behavior in the classroom, and trouble in marriages. If we could just raise someone's low self-esteem, that would be fine. The Christian world dutifully followed along and swallowed these statements. If you look through popular Christian books, you will find many laced through with or founded on this teaching. There is a problem with it. It is not true. All right? As more and more research has been done, the evidence has not supported the belief that low self-esteem causes violence. In fact, violent acts follow from high self-esteem. Perpetrators of violence are typically people who think very highly of themselves. Violence ensues when people feel their favorable favorable view of themselves is threatened or disputed by others. This has been shown to be true across a broad spectrum of violence, from playground bullying to national tyranny, from domestic abuse to genocide, from warfare to murder and rape. Uh, Roy Baumeister has a great deal to say about this in his book, Evil, Inside Human Violence and Cruelty. Now, if the enemy of God, Satan himself, who is in his essence evil, landed there by way of pride, how is it that the Christian community did not see the flaw in this popular reasoning? Were we sleeping? Do we not know the word of God? Would Why would we merely echo those who say they neither know nor do they believe in the very one, capital 
one who created them. And so, yeah, a, a psychologist. Uh, interesting, though. But, you know, she seems to fall, fall more on following God's word. But, again, you know, that doesn't mean everything she's written is true. But it is interesting as we look at, you know, and as I was trying to find a, you know, a diagram that I could maybe copy um, that wouldn't infringe somebody's copyright law, uh, I have an old book uh, from 1981 of psychology. Yes, I took psychology in 1981. I wasn't saved. Um, In it, it talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but one thing that it put in there, it, there was an adjective describing Abraham Maslow. Not the psychologist, but the humanist, Abraham Maslow. Do you guys know what a humanist is, by the way? Anybody want to take a guess? It's somebody that believes that mankind is able to live without God, all right? So somebody that's humanistic is secularistic. They're almost atheistic in a respect, okay? Uh, But nowadays, if you were probably to pick up something on Abraham Maslow, it wouldn't describe him like that. And I mean, certainly, if if you caught what Diane Langberg was saying, that a lot of that self-esteem philosophy is incorporated in Christian self-help books. And so obviously you're not going to find that terminology, the humanistic Abraham Maslow in there is, you know, basically my point. So why is that important? And the reason is because when you look at um, the idea of self-actualization And I want to say this very respectfully and not jokingly at all. But when you look at a school shooting, is it just because somebody's reached the true potential of what they really are? I mean, when you really think about it, if mankind is like the way the Bible says, which is murderous and evil then wouldn't that be what that is? If somebody were to create any act of, you know, heinosity, if that is a word, um, wouldn't that just be a fulfillment of who they really are in the inner person? Because if someone is unregenerate, that's who they are. That's what the Bible tells us. And so sin is a problem. What humanity needs is repentance. We don't need self-esteem. We don't need to tell ourselves we're better. We don't need to build up ourself. We need to repent, and we need to come to God. All right? And so let's, let's take a look at a... Well, I'm going to back up one. Um, let's look at... Uh, so repentance means, you know that, like, repentance in, in the sense that if you're not born again, repentance should look something like, I need to come to Christ for salvation. 
But when we look at it from a, like, all right, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, I truly believe that I've been born again. Um, and I've done this act, which is clearly against God's will. I also need to repent, well, confess my sin, but also repent from that so I don't do it again. So let's look at, uh, I want to look at um, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, if somebody will read that. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and I have, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich in white and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I sell to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Okay. So it sounds to me maybe like the Christians, and he's talking to Christians here um, at the Church of Laodicea, it sounds like they were feeling pretty good about themselves. And yet, what does Christ say to them? He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing, I've self-actualized, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so God sees things totally different. And, and what we need to realize is that we need to repent from certain things. And in this case, you know, maybe the church, rather than repenting about you know, the way we believe about certain things, the way the environment is going or whatever, maybe we need to really think about repenting over how we feel about psychology and looking at God's word as truth and not uh, the teachings of mankind. And I'll say humanistic mankind, secular mankind. Um, Jesus says, those whom I love, I, repu I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And that's just to say, that's what biblical counseling is about. It's about maybe not always calling people to repentance, but where there's sin, it's about repentance. Because sometimes counseling is about uh, guiding somebody, like, how do, I, how do I handle this with my kid? Or... Uh, uh, maybe somebody has just lost a loved one. And how do you counsel somebody who's suffering? And so it isn't always about, uh, you know, getting them to repent from sin, but that's part of it. Uh, and it's part of helping in the sanctification process.
Um, I'm going to just, you know, at this point, I'm going to go to questions because I was going to go into the Holy Spirit, but I don't know if we'll have time tonight to talk about that. So we'll talk about that one. But so this, we, we talked about the doctrine of, of sin and mainly original sin, but uh, also um, the, uh, you know, total depravity or the depravity of man. So, um, and next time we'll start on the Holy Spirit, but any questions? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, that it probably wouldn't make a, a good counseling session to, you know, uh, kind of go back and forth. Maybe it would. I don't know. But uh, I think, you know, one of the things you want to do is, um, you know, like, like the Bible teaches us, if we're in sin, we need to confess our sins to one another. And so, you know, maybe it's, you know, going to the elders of the church asking them for prayer, confessing your sin before them. Um, I, th- I think that's a big part of it is, uh, you know, going to God and confessing our sins. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it does help to confess your sins to others. But the main one is, like, when you do sin, you should confess to God. You know, like it says in First uh, uh, John 1, 9, uh, if we sin... We should confess our sins. And uh, the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, It not only will God forgive us, he's faithful and just to forgive us, uh, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we should confess to God, one. You should confess to others if you've sinned against them. And, uh, and that's, you know, accountability, like from me, would be from the elder board here. And so they're, uh, they're watching over me. And, uh, you know, I think the Bible is pretty clear. Your sin will find you out. Uh, and, you know, that's God's desire. Yeah, God wants you as a counselor to be sanctified just as much as he does the, the person you're counseling. But good question. checklist of character qualifications 
and we're not meeting those qualifications, you know, we, we need to be called on. So. But good question. Somebody else said there? Yeah. Question, but kind of an interesting comment per your um, shooter incident. You know, okay. And I would say the same thing. This is not in a joking manner, but if we look at Hitler, you know, we consider him like the highest of evil right. in our modern world. And we examine the activities he did. Well, he was fulfilling what he truly believed in, in evolution, for example, you know, the the mightiest will win over, and he, he was fulfilling man's ultimate desire to take over the world, just like Pastor was talking about this morning. Um, so, you know, I, I fully agree with you. So how can we say that we need to be better, you know, get better in ourselves that leads to pride and leads to greater sin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, repentance is the, is the key. So, yeah, Anne. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I think part of it is, one, you know, where are you at theologically? You know what I mean? It's like uh, if you have a, like somebody that's just a new convert you know, do they understand, uh, you know, basically what is sin? Where does sin come from? I mean, you can get a lot in a lot of trouble if, uh, like, if you just have a new convert uh, counseling people. Um, the other thing is, you know, in a situation, like some situations probably need a more in-depth counseling. For example, I... Uh, what what would you do if somebody came to you and said, I'm thinking about killing myself? Now that's a, a I mean that's a that's a real I mean like do or die situation in a sense, you know, and it's but it's a reality. Um how how do you deal with something like that? And so it's it's a matter of and I'm not saying you couldn't deal with it, uh, but what I am saying is it's something that, you know, you almost have to be trained in. Like, you know, I mean, even before I did did it, it's like, and that's happened to me since I've been doing biblical counseling is, um, I mean, I call my, uh, my professor because it actually happened while I was doing the uh, uh, counseling, uh, um, supervised counseling. And, you know, I mean, there are certain laws in the state of Minnesota that you have to follow when somebody does that, you know. Um, but there's, I mean, there's just certain things like, are they, uh, do they have a plan? You know, if somebody has a plan of how they're going to, you know, carry it out, um, you know, then there, it's more of a likelihood that they're actually going to do it. And so it's things like this, you know, you, um, now, you may just say, which would be, I don't think, the greatest way to deal with it. I'll pray for you, brother. You need to trust in God. Now, I say that jokingly, but a lot of times that happens in situations that are like that, you know. Uh, you know, and yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but... 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question, Steve.
clearly stated, we examine our own hearts first, and then we go questioning, because we might not have all the information, so we need to be careful, questioning, and that's the humility aspect. Mm. They're not assuming you know what that person's heart is, but you're asking questions to find out if they really feel like that, and where they're often biblically, then we refer them to the scripture and say, but God's word says this, and your thinking is off here, you need to line up with the word of God in this point, okay? So, I think it's just a matter of, of maturation. I mean, I remember when I first got saved, we were a whole group of kids on each side here, right, a couple blocks from here. And we'd get together and pray, and there was one guy that kind of grew up in a Baptist church, the rest of us were off the street and got saved, you know, first generation Christians. This guy grew up in a Baptist church, he was our same age, but he had more knowledge than us, and we learned from him. And then we started applying the things that we learned from him and started doing it with other people, and, and we just continued to grow. And I see people here counseling each other a lot, mm -hmm. and it, it's healthy. Yeah. Does that answer the question at all? Okay. I think humility was the key there, because if you're really doing it in humility, then if somebody comes to you with something that you don't really have an answer for, you'll either say, well, I need to read up on that and get back to you, or uh, maybe you should talk to the one of the elders about it, you know? So, any other questions? But good question. I was curious, the Matt Maslow? Yeah, Maslow. trying to think I read something on this um, there is a document and uh, I might have to get back on you but I want to say it's called SAMHSA uh, S-A-M-S-H-A uh, but it talks a lot about that like how you know people that are maybe addicts you know they're not responsible for their behavior um, stuff like that and which would not, you know, I mean, they're not falling into that hierarchical needs because they're, you know, at some point they've, they've broken the chain in a sense, you know, with their addiction. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's... It's a hierarchy, and so the lowest level is physical needs. Yep. So the number one was physicality 
and then safety and security, and then love and belonging. And so as you have these needs met, then you're a fuller human being. You're, you're, you're more of what you should be as a human being. And so therefore, in counseling, the counselor would look for what areas are you not meeting on that hierarchy and try to get you to the next level. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes two cents. Yep. Go ahead. Study this somewhat. Um, the hierarchy aspect also, they will say, well, how do you expect someone to self-actualize if they don't even have their basic physiological needs? And so that's why, like in Canada, you see safe injection sites where they allow people a place to shoot up drugs cleanly because they're like, well, at least we're not killing them by making them use dirty needles off the street. Well, it's like, no, that's faulty thinking, but there's countries that do that. And, and that's the idea that, like, well, we need them to meet these needs before they can be good people. And it's, yeah. Yeah, thanks. We need to That's good. Um, well, that's all I had, guys. I don't know if there's any other questions. So we can go. Um, let me just close in prayer. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your goodness. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which does teach us every right way. And, Lord, I just pray as a church we would uh, seek you and follow after you. And uh, we just thank you for this time in Jesus Christ's name.